It's all about priorities. Welcome to the Texas Take, the number one political podcast in the great state. I'm Scott Braddock, and he's Jeremy Wallace. You can find me at quorumreport.com, and Jeremy's work appears at houstonchronicle.com and expressnews.com down in San Antonio. Jeremy, how are you, sir? Oh, tired. What a, a short week with the, in the holiday, but long week because of all the stuff happening. Yeah, we had a three-day weekend. I mean, you, you were off on Monday, weren't you? Yes, absolutely was. Well, screw you. I had to work. <laughs> <laughs> I was honoring all of our presidents. I was going through all the presidents. I've read about William McKinley, Rutherford mm-hmm. B. Hayes, all of them. <laughs> Anything on Garfield? <laughs> there you go. Garfield, a little Chester Arthur. Yeah, everybody's always focused on Washington and Lincoln. I'm like, no, let me get me some Chester Arthur. That's what I want. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Um, well, it was a big week at the legislature. It's almost like the starting gun when you start to see the priorities unveiled by the speaker and the lieutenant governor. This is the part of the session where they are at the zenith of their power, if you will, uh, because look, and I've explained this before, I'll do it again. Um, during the legislative session, the governor at the beginning is uh, among the most powerful people in the state, of course, at all times. But at the beginning of the session, he rises in power because he can declare emergency items and let the legislators get to work on certain things, right? He's already done that. Then at the middle of the session, we're getting there now, at the middle of the session, the speaker and the lieutenant governor rise in power because they start to tell us their priorities. They control the flow of legislation. They you know, can send bills to committees or not, which sometimes not sending it to you know, a committee is even more powerful of an act than sending it there, right? It means, hey, this thing is not just, this, this thing ain't happening, right? Then at the end of the session, you have the governor rising power again because that's when he starts to you know cajole the members about things. He starts to threaten vetoes, what he's going to sign and what he's not going to sign and all of that. So we now look to the office of the speaker to try to figure out what his priorities are because the lieutenant governor, he had already done that. He, he unveiled his list of 30 a little while back at 30 priorities, Jeremy. You know, at some point, if everything's a priority, nothing's a priority. Yeah, exactly. But if you, if you have, at some point, if you'll have a list of 20 things. And then 30 things. At some point, you'll have a list of the top 100 things from the lieutenant governor. Here's all the bills that we're going to pass. It's like you didn't make any choices about yeah. what's actually important, right, when you when you just lay all this out. Um, the speaker is doing this in an interesting way. I don't remember ever seeing a speaker of the House do it uh, quite like this before. Um, he says that he's going to have 20 priorities, but we don't know exactly what all of them are just yet. He's, you know, he's given us some clues. And he talked at the beginning of the session about infrastructure investment and, and other, you know, healthcare and some other things that are, that are important to him. Uh, but now he's unveiled four priorities specifically, put out a news release about it, which I hadn't seen a speaker do that before saying, hey, these are my priorities, or at least some of them. And the ones that he's talking about are not the red meat, Jeremy. Yep. They're not, you know, it's not the anti-LGBTQ stuff. It's not uh, anything to do with guns or abortion or all the things we talk about, you know, in the context of GOP primaries, you know, quite a bit. Instead, this has to do with things like, you know, extending health coverage for new mothers, you know, under Medicaid. This has to do with protecting children online uh, from some of the, what has, you know, some of what's been described as the evils of social media. Uh, things like, uh, you know, dealing with taxes for uh, diapers, making diaper, you know, baby supplies, making those things tax exempt, things that affect everybody. And think of it this way. A lot of the things that we end up talking about so much, you know, both here on the show and just out in society in general, so many of the things that rise to the top of political discussions affect a tiny group of people, right? And we'll get to one of those issues in just a little bit. And that doesn't mean it's not important, but I think there are some discussions that don't match up with reality because there's so many words, but then so few people who are actually impacted by these things. Before the speaker laid out his uh, priorities, he was interviewed uh, by Monica Madden over at uh, KXAN television. She asked him about how he comes up with the House's priorities in the first place. The, the agenda in the Texas House is driven by the members, and obviously my travels throughout the state, I get to hear from constituents across the, this, this great state to hear about what they, what they prioritize, what they care about. And uh, you can see a lot of the priorities in the House already in HB1, which is the budget. So we have a record revenue that we've never seen before here in the state of Texas, uh, over $33 billion. And a lot of that is because of inflation. It's because people are paying more for the same items that they got two years ago, but at 50, 60% increases. So the state is a benef- benefactor of that, of that inflation. 
So uh, we have to treat it as a one-time uh, surplus that may not be here in 2025. And so as you look through the budget, you'll see issues like health care, of course, the postpartum uh, care for mothers up to 12 months. You'll see a lot of infrastructure, whether it's school safety or broadband, or roads and bridges and uh, fresh water and the grid and uh, drainage and, uh, and flood mitigation. So uh, a lot of those priorities are in the budget and there will be uh, low bill numbers will be released soon on a lot of those issues. You'll see the House priorities kind of come together. But uh, I really listen to the House members and I want to hear what's important to them as we move forward because they are the ones who uh, drive the agenda. Jeremy, this is a very different tone from 2021, and I don't I don't just mean about Speaker Phelan specifically. 2021 was its own beast. As you described it, it was a red meat buffet at the Capitol. Here are some of the headlines, or here, let me just read one of the headlines to you after the Speaker announced his priorities, or at least the first four of them. Uh, speaker Phelan, and it, tell me if this would be, you know, something that would drive a lot of uh, internet traffic. Okay, ready? The, the, the headline is, um, and you'll see where I'm going with it. The headline is Speaker Dade Phelan prioritizing women, children, and security for the 88th legislative session. I, you know, this is not the kind of divisive and highly controversial agenda so far in the House, which is quite a contrast with the lieutenant governor who put out a list of things that include, you know, going after drag shows, the kids being exposed to, uh, you know, sexually explicit material and all these sort of things that get you know people really worked up. And I'm not saying that Republicans in the House won't address some of those things as well, but it seems like the speaker out of the gate wants to set a very different tone. What do you think? Yeah, there's definitely like, you know, there's a game of poker uh, that's being played, obviously, you know, like, you know, as much as like, you know, Patrick saying he has these 30 priorities, there's a couple of them that are really dear to him. Right. You know, and then just like in, but in Phelan's case, he's like kind of giving us this list of things that maybe none of them are really truly what he loves. And this is all part of kind of building up to, you know, the last couple of weeks of the session. That's when the horse trading goes on, when like priorities of the other are taken hostage uh, in order to get something else passed that somebody else wants. So there's a lot of smoke screening and poker and all this kind of stuff that happens, you know, in the legislative process, particularly early on, <laughs> you know, where it's just like, oh, yeah, I really love this idea. Oh, please don't take it hostage when it's like, go ahead, take it. I don't care. You know, it's like you can take that where you want. And you, you heard almost, you know, Phelan did this like earlier, uh, you know, in the session. There was a he had a conversation with some reporters where like he was kind of starting to talk about business taxes and it sounded like he was going towards a priority. And he said, oh, but really casinos, casinos, what a big deal that could be, you know, to make it sound like that was his priority. <laughs> Clearly not his priority, but he, w- he doesn't want to see the stuff he really cares about mm-hmm. taken hostage by the Senate. And likewise, the other way around, Patrick does not want, you know, his, you know, biggest priority to be taken hostage and having to negotiate off of that, you know, because that just changes the negotiations completely. Oh, sure. In fairness to the speaker, by the way, he was asked about casinos. He didn't just volunteer that just so that people Correct. are yeah. just so that people are clear on that. But it did become a big narrative after he talked to journalists about that, uh, you know, for that week, at least. But you are you are so on point. I have always told folks that when you are trying to get and this is for members of the legislature, when when the lawmakers are trying to get headlines and news stories about a bill that was pre-filed last year, it's like having it's like sitting in a classroom and having somebody take a picture of the fact that you raised your hand, right? You're not doing anything yet, right? And 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 in some ways, exactly what you said. In some ways, you are setting yourself up for that bill to fail. That gives uh, people who are against you that much time to plot against whatever it is you're trying to do, uh, you know, and set the traps for that thing. Uh, so yeah, I, I think it's a very different tone from the speaker. And to your point, he doesn't want to tip his hand too much exactly where he's going with the house's agenda because he, and look, you've pointed this out before we covered it in real time, uh, in 2021, um, the Senate under Lieutenant Governor Patrick has gotten very good at holding these bills hostage. If if the if the House sends something over that is clearly a leadership priority, uh, you know, in the House, then then the Senate will either kill that thing or make it clear to House leadership that that thing's not going to happen unless Patrick gets everything that he wants. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, and a good way to think of it, I, I came up with this the other day, you know, you know, in, in the era of when Lance Armstrong was, you know, winning Tour de France's and stuff, you know, we all of us Texans started kind of learning a little bit about cycling. It's kind of like cycling. You know, if you ever seen that sport for the first like 60 miles, nothing is happening. It's like, it's just people on a casual ride. That's kind of where we are in the session right now. We're in that casual yeah. ride session, but then all of a sudden things start getting nasty and elbows start flying and people are getting you know being knocked to the ground and stuff at the end of the race that's kind of where you know the legislature kind of almost follows your classic tour de france lance armstrong thing who's going to get you know at, at the end that's when all the action is going to happen you know it's like and you just see them both setting up for you know you, you, again you don't want to tip your hair in too much you want to play a really good close game of poker mm-hmm. we've seen it in the past Patrick likes to send everything over to the Senate or to the house right away and yeah. you know, put all the pressure on them going now, if, if anything doesn't get through, I can blame you for it. And the house seems to be the opposite typically, which is like, okay, you know, we'll negotiate with you, but towards the end when the pressure's mm-hmm. on. Yeah. So what are governor Abbott's priorities? Of course, last week we heard from him during his state of the state address. Uh, and some of the things that he laid out were both, uh, I think s- some of the red meat stuff, but also some things that are just more bread and butter issues. Um, one of the things that is more in the red meat category, something he didn't talk about in the state of the state address was this issue. And I'm putting issue in, in air quotes, Jeremy, verify for the listeners. I'm doing air quotes yes. right now. Those are um, definitely air the, quotes. <laughs> the issue in air quotes of transgender athletes in uh, collegiate sports, it's jumped right to the top of Abbott's list. Now, also in the last week, Abbott spoke, and you mentioned this last week, uh, that he spoke at this group, uh, this this uh, this event uh, called Young America's Foundation. Was that in Grapevine? Up yes, at the, beautiful Grapevine. Up, <laughs> <laughs> hey, I like Grapevine. They, they've got... Uh, Great little cigar shop that's attached to a, to a bar there that, that I really enjoy. Now, that said, Abbott is he's making noises about this uh, in different events. But it's interesting to me that uh, sort of like on the school voucher issue, he talks about these, these different things in different ways depending on who, who's there in the audience, right? So for a group like uh, Young America's Foundation, which is this um, Scott Walker's thing? Yeah, yeah, Scott Walker's the head of that right now, the former governor from Wisconsin. Right. Abbott told Walker on stage there in Grapevine that he never thought that transgender athletes would ever even be a topic that would come up in discussion. When we were kids, it, it was never a deal. And it's just astonishing. I can still recall that that, that uh, woman who was a swimmer who, who lost to the transgender swimmer. Think how many hours that woman spent from her early childhood to the time when she was in college only to come in second place because she had to compete against a person who was biologically a male. Think of the same thing. You know, we've fought for the rights of women to be able to succeed in this world only to have that now superseded by this ideology that men are going to be empowered to compete against women. Of course, the question of women's reproductive freedom doesn't come up when the governor talks about women being able to succeed. The real threat, apparently, is that some man is going to be dressed as a woman and compete against women in certain sports. So, so Governor, what are you going to do about this? What's going to happen? Uh, And in Texas last session, we passed a law uh, prohibiting uh, biological men from competing in women's sports in uh, the education level from high school down. This next session, we will pass a law prohibiting biological men to compete against women in college sports. If, if, if women... <laughs> women and only women should be competing uh, in college or high school sports, as well as representing the United States of America in our Olympic sports. I'm chuckling, Jeremy, because I don't think he really meant to say that only women should be competing in sports. 
but that is what he just said. I think that what, <laughs> I'm going to give him some grace and say, well, I think what I think he meant is that only women should compete in sports that have been designated to be women's sports. I, I mean, I, I, I get it. But I do think when you say something like that, when it comes out of your mouth that way, it's because you're parroting what other people have said. Obviously, he did not come up with this idea. This has been uh, something that's been driven by the Tucker Carlson types and others who have used this language that is it's it, very interesting. This language that sounds like liberals talking about the, you know, you know, trying to fight for equal rights for women and then use that to attack the transgender community. Um, this is something that, of course, as I mentioned off the top, one of those issues that affects almost nobody. I was, and it's not that it doesn't affect anybody, and I'm not saying it's not important, but when you look at what people think about the, uh, these transgender issues and you uh, ask people how many folks would be affected by this. You saw that poll last year that we talked about here on the show where there were folks who thought, you know, when they, when they would poll Americans about how many people are transgender in the United States, people would think it's seven or 8% when it's more like less than 1% that this is almost, this is almost affecting no one. And it doesn't affect nobody. I'm not saying that, and I'm not saying it's not important. Um, but this whole question of, you know, transgender athletes in sports, you, have you noticed that every time anyone talks about this, it's always the same exact stories that they, they only have three or four stories they can point to. And so, and, and get people whipped up about, there was this swimmer, there was this thing that happened with somebody in, you know, some event that you never even heard of, uh, you know, on, you know, you had the swimming thing, then you had this other thing that no one ever heard of. And then you have, you know, this one other person that felt discriminated against. There's a lot of interesting discussions around all of this. Of course, it is designed to appeal to the folks who are the supporters of former president Trump, who don't like the fact that the country is changing in multiple ways, and this is just one other way to appeal to those people. Um, but then when it comes to uh, actually dividing up athletes into different categories to compete, I did hear a, a really interesting discussion one time about the idea that maybe maybe the athletes shouldn't be divided up by men and women. I heard someone ask this question, what other way would you do it? Well, in boxing, for example, they divide them up by how big the people are. Right. I mean, it's, you got featherweights, lightweights, heavyweights. Right. And the, we're talking about men in boxing. Right. But the, but it's not the only way that you can divide up people to play on team sports or on individualized sports. Right. Uh, so the whole so this idea that men and women, boys and girls have to be divided up. What are they really talking about? Oh, well, they're t this goes right back to the bathroom bill stuff from 2017. What are they really talking about? Oh, the fact that they'll be in the locker room together. Oh, they'll shower together. And that's inappropriate. So that gets parents whipped up about all this stuff, even if it's not happening in their school or any school they've ever been to or any school they're ever going to visit, Jeremy. That this is um, this is another one of these divisive things that gets really ugly really fast. I know that people will say to me, oh, Scott, it affects way more people than you think. No. It, it, the point is, at least as far as I can tell, is it's, it's once again grossly attacking a tiny minority that can't fight back. This so is what we saw in 2017, and have seen in you know you know other legislative sessions, especially in uh, in 2021. Uh, but using that tiny minority to try to whip up people who are clearly you know they are the majority in Texas is exactly what Abbott is doing. Yeah, exactly. When you ask, like specifically, give me an incident uh, in UIL sports in Texas where uh, a, a, a transgender girl ended up winning you know, some competition. Give me an example of what you were talking about. They can't point to something that happened in Texas because it's just not happening, you know, so they have to kind of go outside. But it kind of make, makes you nervous, though, when you, when you heard Greg Abbott in that clip and, you know, starting to talk about it, when he said, back in my day, you almost kind of get this point, yeah, back in your day, the LGBTQ people were all in the closet and they, they, they couldn't, you know, compete in anything. They couldn't be out. You know, it's like, it's like saying, Oh, I never met anybody who was gay in the 1950s and sixties. It's like, yeah, because they were all, you know, having to hide who they were. It's like, so it's like, it's just, it's a delicate place where he starts talking about that. And it goes back to that MAGA stuff that, you know, from, you know, Donald Trump, make America great again, make, 
America great again, where we didn't have to think and worry about people who, you know, were, were trying to find their place in the world, essentially. You know, we didn't have to think about gay people and respect them and consider them part of our culture. We could just kind of put right. them in a closet and not have to think about it and, like, say terribly offensive things about them. You know, it's like, that is not the way this country works now. It's like, you know, thankfully, we've kind of made a lot of progress. And But you hear these kind of conversations where it's just like, boy, instead of, like, trying to adjust how we kind of think about that stuff, people mm-hmm. are like, Let's just go back. Let's go back to the way where, like, anybody who doesn't seem, you know, woman enough for me or man enough for me, get out of here. <laughs> don't be right. part of this conversation. Mm-hmm. Like, that's not how this works. You don't get to make that decision on your own. <laughs> We're a yeah. whole society, it turns out. I mean, growing up in rural Texas, I can tell you that the mindset of a lot of the folks who would later be uh, people who would support President Trump when he was in office, um, the, the mindset of a lot of those folks is that they don't really – have a, and this isn't, this is not everybody in rural Texas. I'm not saying that, but I, my, my father would say something like this. He would say, well, those people just ought to not do that. Yeah. <laughs> like he, he's kind of whatever it is that they're doing that he doesn't like, he would say, well, why do they even have to do that? He wouldn't have an answer for what to do about it. He would just say, why, why can't they just, you know, be normal like the rest of us? You know, that, that would be kind of the, <laughs> the attitude of a person who, who the, the kind of person you're talking about, who just wants, they want the throwback. Right. They want to go back to they want to go back to the way it was in the 50s and the 60s and 70s or whatever. And then, you know, however many decades you go back, you would have people say things. You could you could take any issue and just fill in the blank. We never had to think about, you know, like whites and black people marrying each other. Yep. That's not when we were kids. Somebody years ago, decades ago would have said that this is not a topic that ever would have come up. Right. <laughs> they would have said what Abbott said about the transgender people. Well, this idea that these people want equal rights, like women being able to vote, you know, yeah. it, there was a certain point in America where somebody would have said, you know, when we were kids, we didn't even have to think about that. This is not even anything that even came up. Well, you know, social change happens in um, in, in ways that make people uncomfortable, no matter who the group is that was oppressed. Once they're not oppressed anymore. The other folks feel, you know, like things have changed in a way that they don't like. That's always been the case. Yeah, absolutely. And you see that, like, this issue just continues to be almost like, yeah, I hate to say it this way, but almost like a greatest hits for Republicans to go to. Like, even mm-hmm. if they're trying to be more moderate and bipartisan on some other issues, like this issue of going after transgender people you know, kind of keeps coming back. You, know, you saw it in mm-hmm. 2017, you know, it, it comes back in, you know, this last, you know, legislative session in 2021, you know, it's like, here we go again. It's just, it's just something for some reason that they feel like they have to make this point to their conservative base, you know, every now and then where it's just like, I'm not sure if they need to at this point. It's like, you know, they right. have all the, you know, they have every part of the state government in their control. It's like, I'm not sure if you have to like, you know, put the screws down on, you know, people who are transgender even more. Like you've done enough. Yeah, you, you, you've already made it so public in 2017 as it was probably uncomfortable for a lot of people who are transgendered who are just trying to live a life. You know, it's yeah. like, and they're having to kind of look over their shoulder, wonder if people are kind of looking at them different. And it's like, this, they're just people. They're just like, they're people among us. And it's just like, the more they bring this up, you know, it just, it just feels like it adds to this tension, but they don't see any repercussion for it. You know, they mm-hmm. see it like, you know, a lot of Republicans are going to want to push this issue because they know there's a part of their base that just keeps, you know, giving them applause for it. You heard it in that event that Abbott did, you know, how, you know, he got applause when he started talking about that, you know, it's like, and that's an addictive thing for anybody in politics. Right. So I get why he's doing it. It's just like, I'm just not sure if they need to go full bore on this issue yet again. Yeah. Well, it's um, it's the same old thing of primary politics in Texas. At some point, it becomes not about taking over state government, but being, but or not about the party taking over state government, but about specific people being in charge in state government. Right. It's that, yeah, you know, Abbott exactly. and others don't want to be primaried. They don't want to be they don't want people in the further right of the Republican Party coming after them. And so they feel like they have to check that box, like you're saying. And in 2017, when the bathroom bill was debated because there are so few transgender people in Texas and in the rest of society, you know, as an overall part of the population, Jeremy, we may have had almost every transgender person in the whole state at the, at the Texas Capitol when people were testifying about this. And it occurred to me as that was unfolding that all those people were using the public restrooms at the Capitol, you know, all day long and 
everybody was fine. Yeah, it was not a good it was, point. It was it wasn't a problem? You know, was just the fact that they even brought this up demonstrated that it doesn't even matter. Why are you doing this? It doesn't even matter. Nobody's upset about this. Every, everything's cool. Leave it alone. Um, the issue of DEI being the new CRT, as we just, you know discussed it a couple of weeks ago, it has uh, boiled over. There was um, a press conference this past week uh, in which the NAACP and the Texas Legislative Black Caucus got together and said, you know, what Governor Abbott is doing on that issue is discriminatory and setting us back. It goes right with what we're talking about here on the transgender issues, all these different minority groups that feel that state government in this state is cracking down on them specifically to try to appease their base. This is what this is. This, this, this theme runs through so many different issues, right? Uh, Ron Reynolds is the chairman of the Texas legislative black caucus in the Texas house. Um, and he says that the uh, memo that was issued by the governor's office to state agencies, as you pointed out, primarily pointing to those uh, higher ed institutions. Uh, and there's an update on that we'll get to. But Ron Reynolds says it really is just using minorities as sort of political pawns in a game of chess. We will not remain silent. We will not be complicit in his attempt to use minorities that happen to make up a majority of the state as pawns for his political game. Texas NAACP President Gary Bledsoe at that same news conference said that major sports leagues uh, like the NBA, NFL, MLB, etc., that they should boycott Texas with their major events until the governor rescinds his memo about uh, DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Also, we call on companies to speak the truth about DEI policies and their impact on the public so that the public gets the facts and not inaccurate information. And right to the point you made previously on the show, Jeremy, I saw the headline this week that this is really about our colleges and universities. University of Texas announced just this past week uh, that the system, uh, UT system, is not going to use DEI for now, at least uh, for their hiring practices, obviously under pressure from Governor Abbott. Yeah, absolutely. You've got to remember the, uh, the you know, uh, chairman of the Board of Regents for the University of Texas was appointed to that position by Governor Abbott. And so it's like, you know, and that's the university Governor Abbott got his undergraduate degree from. So you start kind of feeling the pressure there. And, and what exactly they said is that they're going to pause any new additional DEI programs and look at what they're doing now to make sure they're in compliance. So it's kind of a, a kind of a moderate step. And I, I did speak with Governor Abbott about this uh, yesterday. And he did tell me uh, that he thought it was appropriately measured step to kind of make sure, you know, how they're applying these things, you know. So he says he wants diversity on the campuses, but what a lot of people are concerned about and what he put in that letter uh, through his chief of staff was that Mm -hmm. they're worried that these DEI programs, diversity, equity, inclusion, are going too far and are discriminating against people who may not fit in the demographic categories that universities are trying to improve on. Mm -hmm. And so essentially a white professor is getting turned down for a job at Texas A&M because he's not Hispanic. That's what their concern is. And, you know, a lot of the DEI supporters saying that's not what this does, though. All this is all DEI really does is make sure you're broadening your pool of applicants. So you're reaching out to places and trying to get people who are Hispanic, black, uh, you know, women, you know, to apply for jobs that maybe they weren't in those cycles to kind of be like in the application pool before. And so you see where the conflict is, is starting to head. And man, that conflict is getting pretty big. You know, I reported, you know, just this week that, you know, as Abbott is going in and trying to crack down on this issue of DEI, what's Joe Biden in the White House doing? The exact opposite. Right. They, you know, this week they ended up putting out, you know, there are all kinds of things they've been doing over the last three weeks, but this week was really kind of a big deal. You know, President Biden put out a new uh, executive order deepening DEI throughout the federal government. The uh, federal government also put out a new report, their first ever report on diversity that showed how low the diversity numbers are in the federal government, even with them trying to improve them, you know, showing that how, look, one of the things I posted on Twitter was that only 5% of the management level 
of the federal government is made up of Hispanics, which is mm-hmm. unbelievable when you consider that Hispanics are almost 20% of the United States population at this point. So they're very underrepresented in positions of power in the federal government. And so like you see Biden kind of digging in on this, you see Abbott digging in on this. And so you just, you can feel there's going to be a conflict down the road on oh, this yeah. issue. At some point, Joe Biden sees this as a super important issue to him. You know, he grew up in Delaware, you know, where there's a you know, very large African-American population. It's a very diverse state if you haven't been there. You know, mm-hmm. so it's like one of those places where, you know, coming from that area, he has a you know different commitment to, you know, these diversity programs, you know, where he he wants to see this you know, spread throughout. He wants this to be part of his legacy. He wants to be able to tell people that, you know, under my watch, we made the federal government the most diverse workplace it's ever been that reflects the American public. Abbott, on the other hand, wants to make sure he's on the cutting edge and the front lines of this fight against, you know, using their terminology, these woke universities that have gone too (laughs) far you know, and trying to exclude conservative thought. I asked Abbott about this in more detail this week, and he told me, it's like, you know, his concern is that ultimately colleges are trying to wipe out conservative thought on campuses, and they need to fight back. And this whole DEI fight is just part of that, you know, basket of Republicans worry that the future Greg Abbott's are being discouraged from talking on campus. Yes, and uh, you have the liberal bastion, the woke university in College Station, Texas, Texas A&M, which is just unrivaled in its almost socialist, Marxist, woke <laughs> teaching. Oh, wait, no, it's not that at all. <laughs> it, it Quite a stretch. I mean, you, people will talk about UT Austin being pretty liberal, but Texas A&M, really? All right, we'll, we'll, we'll put a pin on it. We'll come back, put a pin in it <laughs> and come back to that uh, discussion. <laughs> um, the uh, other thing you asked Abbott about was the question of sales taxes, I believe. I know that there's uh, some you know, discussion about now at the Capitol, some bipartisan discussion about maybe cutting sales taxes. But, you know, all the questions on taxes, Jeremy, you know, in this legislative session, it it can all get kind of complicated pretty quickly. But I do think that there's nothing complicated about this. And the speaker acknowledged it uh, in the comments you heard from him earlier in the show, is that we have this giant surplus in Texas in large part because of inflation, right? Things cost more. And there was no corresponding cut in the sales taxes, right? So you have this huge windfall uh, that comes to Texas for two basic reasons. One is all of that federal money that came in from the COVID relief efforts from from Washington. And then two, you have this out-of-control inflation. Republicans talk about it all the time, right? Democrats would almost rather that they never had to talk about it (laughs) because there's a Democrat in the White House. But for Republicans, they talk about it all the time, that there is record inflation. We've got to do something about this. But the comptroller and the speaker both acknowledge that we have this giant surplus in large part because of inflation. So I have said this a few times. I'll say it again. If When you have such a giant surplus, it means one of two things, or, actually, or it could be both of them, that you're either taxing people too much, right? Or that you're underserving your population or both, right? And then you would have this giant mountain of money. I think uh, Glenn Whitley, the now retired Republican Tarrant County judge, he said it very well. He said, you know, if the tax policy was right in this state, then that money would be in your account instead of the state's account, right? So, so, so you followed up with Abbott about this whole tax discussion. What was that discussion like? Yeah. So the sales tax issue, like you know, look, I've been watching this for since January. It was like on the slow burn on the back burner, you know. It's like, but like you, you kind of knew it was there as a potential, and I think it's really kind of picking up steam. And it really did this past week because that's when you know Senator Royce West of Dallas, a Democrat, and Bob Hall, a Republican, uh, signed on to this bill together to push for a lower sales tax. You know, when I was talking to Royce West, it's like, oh, just your typical Royce West, Bob Hall, you know, piece of legislation, you know, which proves to laugh because those guys are about as far away on the political spectrum as you will Mm -hmm. find any two human beings. But yet it shows that there's both Republican and Democratic support in this idea because one of the concerns, and you've started to hear it more and more, particularly within the Democratic caucus, is that these property tax cuts are great. But 
it's leaving out all the renters and it's leaving out people who don't have homesteaded properties. And so what do you do for those people? This is the attempt to kind of spread the tax relief to everybody. You know, like mm-hmm. Nobody's going to get rich off this thing, but you could save hundreds of dollars you know, yeah. every year, depending on how much you spend on stuff. And that can really kind of help a family, you know, that's, you know, just above the poverty line yeah. as well as help the, the the wealthy million dollar mansion guy, right? You know, so, mm-hmm. so this is kind of their solution to get to that. And so what but we haven't heard Abbott talk about it much. So I asked him about this, you know, earlier this week, and he said it's definitely something he's interested in, and not just interested in, but he has his own ideas that he's gonna put out here in the coming weeks uh, to show where he stands on this issue and what he would like to see get done. And so this thing is, you know, now with the governor's backing of it and bipartisan support in the Texas Senate, mm-hmm. and a lot of Democrats in the House who have been asking for this for years, now all of a sudden this issue has like, it's, it's rolling down the track. It's like, mm-hmm. this thing is moving. This has a lot more momentum than I think a lot of us realized back in January. I thought it was just a couple of wonks who were supporting this idea, but now it's starting to spread quickly. And now with the governor on board, to me that says, okay, this thing's going to really start going somewhere. If there's a property tax bill Watch this and you get linked to that. You know, this is going to be a part of a bigger property, all tax, like a tax relief package. Yeah, it's going to be one of those comprehensive, like, you know, you know reform packages. And so now we get, because yeah. you're going to want things to balance things off. You get a lot, you're going to have a lot of Democrats that say, look, I'm just not giving a homestead exemption to a million dollar mansion owner again. You know, mm-hmm. I got to have something with it. So you attach it to the same bill with the sales tax increase or at least something close to it. So you can do a like, OK, you do that. We do this. We all get tax relief for everybody and not just for one segment of the population. You know, because as I talked to Senator Royce West, is like we don't want to leave out the people who can't afford homes. They mm-hmm. seemingly need the taxes more than in tax relief more than anybody. And right. yet they're the ones who aren't getting any of it. Any, everything they did these last four years isn't helping somebody who's renting. And it's like, and so what do you do for them? Well, and, you know, not everything is about presidential politics, but what a way to set yourself up for a run. If you could say, hey, back in Texas, I cut every tax that we've got <laughs> or, or, or tried or tried to do, uh, you know, some version of that. We we, you know, gave people property tax relief. We cut the sales tax. Oh, and by the way, we don't even have an income tax in Texas, so we didn't have to cut that because we don't even do that to people in Texas. It's, it's just such a beautiful way to wrap all that up, you know, and put a nice a pretty bow on top when it comes to tax policy. The the sales tax is so regressive. Like you say, like if you start to if you start to cut sales taxes in a way that saves people hundreds of dollars, there's a lot of families that would really help. Yeah. Right. I mean, it, you know, for some of the folks listening, I can tell you right now, it wouldn't even matter. They would say I wouldn't that uh, th- they wouldn't know the difference. Right. But there's a lot of families who really struggle and could really use that help. And it has been a big frustration of a lot of folks in this state that the only people who seem to uh, get any attention about how high their tax bill is are the people who live in you know big you know, homes that are you know in in neighborhoods where those struggling families don't live. Right? Yeah, that, well, that's what's been that's what's really been uh, kind of sticking in the in the craw of a lot of people. You know, and I was asked this question at an event the other day. Somebody said, well, "Why is it that uh, so much debate happens around the property tax issue?" where those folks um, who don't pay property taxes won't get anything out of it. It's only maybe half of the people in the state or less who are directly impacted by the property tax question. Um, the other, you know, the answer I gave was to say, look, even for those people, the things that have been passed previously don't really amount to much either. As you, as you said in one of your stories, as you pointed out, looking through the numbers, over the uh, many years that the lieutenant governor has been pushing for property tax relief and reform, about 20 years worth of that. And for some people, it meant a savings of a whole $50. Yeah. You know, the last, the last time that the last time that they got that bill. Um, so I think it, one thing about the tax question, I think this deal on sales taxes can in a substantive way be a real discussion for all Texans, because as you said, everybody buys stuff. Everybody pays a sales tax. Not everybody pays the property tax, although I would say that for renters, 
it is built into their rent. So it doesn't mean you know, when you have skyrocketing rents in Austin, part of that is because of the property tax increases that we have seen or the, you know, the increase in the, the amount of property taxes for the, for the landlord. So that it all, it all goes together. I mean, you get it. Um, but for, I, because of the sort of narrow focus of the property tax, quote unquote, relief bills that have been passed previously, I almost think it gets talked about too much. You know, that yeah. it is an important issue, but maybe it gets way too much ink and way too much discussion on shows like this when a sales tax thing impacts everybody. And the state can absolutely, with this big windfall, can absolutely afford to do something about it. But then the question comes up because, because of course, and people may not know this, the sales tax is the number one revenue stream for the state, right? For, for state general revenue. The, the property taxes are collected locally. For the state, it's that sales tax, right? And if we go into the next session two years from now or the next session four years from now, the next session six years from now, and we don't have as rosy a picture, then they have to start also thinking about, well, if we cut the sales tax now, what will that mean later if the economy shifts up quite dramatically? Yeah, absolutely. And, and and so and so why is there always that discussion about, you know, property taxes and not sales taxes? Well, you know, here's the cold hard fact about it. You know, homeowners vote more. It's like the homeowners in the woodlands are going to make far more noise than every renter in the south side of San Antonio will ever do. It's like and so what do the politicians do? They play towards the people who they know are going to be good votes down the road. They want to address their issue first and foremost. You know, it's like, again, I, I, it's it, it's just the nature of politics. You know, I, yeah. I, I'm not casting stones on any person. Of sure. course, politicians want to get the most votes. They want to win. Mm-hmm. They want to stay in office and all that stuff. So there's just not a lot of electoral significance mm-hmm. to providing tax relief to people who rent and don't vote. Right. You know, so why would you do that? It's kind of like the same thing with immigration reform. It's like, yeah, it's like, you know, these, you know, if if you work on these immigration issues, are you getting votes out of it? Probably not. You know, it's like, so why do it? You know, so just hammer way at the border and say Mm -hmm. things are terrible. You know, it's like, and so, so it's, it's in that same category at some point, you know, but just have this conversation, even with the governor saying he wants to do it kind of opens the door. Like, even though it's not necessarily the best route in terms of winning in the next election, Mm -hmm. it's probably the the right thing to do. If you Mm want to really have a tax relief package that affects everybody. And like, again, I just keep going back to the guy who owns a million dollar, you know, home probably doesn't need that $50 (laughs) cut back on his taxes as much as the family who's really struggling paycheck to paycheck, who's showing at the food bank lines every week to get their food. It's like, those people need that 50 bucks. Can't we move that money over? And right Mm -hmm. now that's not happening. But because of what you said. Because it's the homeowners who generally vote and because their votes are increasingly up for grabs, especially in suburban Texas, where you do have more people who are at least open to voting for Democrats. If we get through this session and only one of those things can pass, because, you know, as you said, there's all sort of deal making that starts to happen. If only one of those things can make it through the process, it'll be the property tax legislation and not the one about sales taxes. If they could get both, I bet they would love to, you know, just trumpet that everywhere but when it, when the rubber meets the road, because of the politics of that, it'll be property taxes all day, every day. All right. I did mention uh, Abbott may be running for president, and that, that does get sprinkled into our analysis now and then. There's something I wanted to bring up last week, which you had pointed out, and I was trying to parse the words on this. I was trying to figure it out. There were some headlines that to me seemed... I don't know if they were misleading, but maybe some folks getting ahead in themselves in our industry. Imagine that journalists, you know, getting things wrong. It or or let me say it this way. Let me be more generous. Journalists getting things not quite right. So I saw some headlines <laughs> that said that uh, Cruz, that Ted Cruz is not running for president. That that's just not happening. Right? That, I can't even remember where it was, but it just said Ted Cruz is running for the Senate and he's not running for president. And I thought that seems like they're out over their skis a little bit because I, I was going back and I, I called you uh, off the air, I called you and said, am I crazy? Or did Cruz not say that? Did, did he ever say, hell no, I'm not running for president. And I couldn't find that in any of his commentary. And I don't know if the people who wrote those headlines are aware, but in Texas, you can run for us Senate and run for something else. 
right? This is, goes back to the LBJ rule, right? They changed it up. Uh, you, uh, for everybody else, you can only appear on that on the on the one ballot twice. Excuse me, once <laughs> on the one ballot you can um, see. I'm messing it up now too. See, journalists getting things not quite right. <laughs> it happens. Um, but no, on the ballot you can only appear once, right? With the exception of Senate and President or Vice President, because of LBJ, right? So Cruz could run for both. Now, I think that's a lot of work. <laughs> I think that that, that might be uh, too much for him to do. And of course, this is all going to uh, you know, overlap. But I wanted to get some clarification on this. And so where was where was Cruz talking? It was, was this one of those teletown hall things? Yeah, this was a teletown hall conference. At, uh, I'm on those regularly somehow. I'm not mm-hmm. entirely sure why. But I do uh-huh. make sure I, I listen to those occasionally because he does – sometimes have something to say that's kind of newer and, and you know, like the rest of the public hasn't heard yet. Okay. So let's try to parse this. Here's what Cruz said on the teletown hall as Jeremy was listening in. I'm on the ballot in 2024. I am running for reelection and it is not complicated that after Donald Trump, there is no Republican in the country that Democrats want to beat more than me. I am trying to think of other Republicans who Democrats want to beat more than Cruz um, and and Trump. And he might have something there, although I'm pretty sure that Democrats really want to beat the hell out of Ron DeSantis, for example. I'm pretty sure that Democrats want to beat Greg Abbott. I'm pretty sure that Democrats want to beat pretty much anybody who is anybody who's even under consideration for the nomination for president right now on the Republican side, but he's probably still right up there, you know, as far as, you know, the, the Republic, one of the Republicans that is loathed the most by Democrats. Jeremy, what did you think when you heard him say that? I thought like, uh, it's not just Democrats. <laughs> he has a problem <laughs> with Republicans too. Remember, yes, he does. remember There's it was issue. Lindsey Graham who, <laughs> you know, said some really terrible things about him. <laughs> it's it's yes. actually other Republicans who have like, you know, really been part of his problem and why, you know, if there right. is one problem in Ted Cruz's career is that, you know, his ability to progress in the Senate is limited because of the number of people who don't want him to progress in the Senate, yes. you know, and that includes, you know, clearly Mitch McConnell, you know, hasn't, you know, gone out of his way to, you know, help Ted Cruz out on a lot of issues. So, right. uh, and, you know, Ted Cruz has returned the favor by absolutely, you know, going after him during his campaign announcements. And I don't remember his last reelection when he announced his campaign, they were going mm-hmm. after Mitch McConnell at that very event. You know, you're like, that's a fellow Republican. <laughs> Your battle is actually so probably supposed to be with the Democrats and all that stuff gets marked down somewhere in Washington, mm-hmm. DC. They hear all these things. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, it's like, I, I think you're right. You know, you know, Ted Cruz is probably one of the most, you know, wanted to be defeated, you know, among the Democratic faithful out there, but there are plenty of Republicans who would like to chip in and help as well, I think. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, you know, and Cruz has remade himself before. I mean, I, 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 you know, I almost thought that he was just complete toast after the Republican National Convention where they nearly booed him off the stage because he would not endorse Donald Trump. Uh, he did so much work. To, I mean, at least, you know, for the politics of it, to his credit, um, he was able to get most of those folks who just hated him at that event. He got most of those people back into his fold. I mean, the most Republican grassroots folks, they don't even bring that up anymore. Uh, you know, if you go to any of the Republican events where, you know, where Cruz is either speaking or, you know, he's got some role in whatever event, I would sometimes bring it up and say, well, remember when he wouldn't endorse Trump? And they'll kind of, you know, screw up their face and go, yeah, he did do that, didn't he? They don't like they don't like it when they're when they're reminded of it. But my point is, he's done such a good job of moving past that, that I have to remind them that he did that. Right. Because at the time, at the time uh, in 2016, at the time, it was the talk of Republican politics that this guy is done after that. I've never seen in all the speeches I've ever watched in my career over a quarter century, I have never seen someone be welcomed just with open arms and just, you know, it's such a loving and um, and just amazing sort of just glowing way. He was welcomed to that stage. And then I'm saying like in the same speech, (laughs) they loved him at the beginning and they absolutely hated him by the end. I've never seen a 180 like that in politics. And then somehow he was able to get them back. He made another 180. They love him again. 
Well, and that is exactly why when I wrote about those comments that Ted Cruz made, I made sure there was a, an opening in that story that if something happens where Donald Trump is not the nominee, one of the first people in line at the Federal Election Commission to file his paperwork will be Ted Cruz. What Ted Cruz doesn't want to do is after having remade himself that last time, he went from being booed for not endorsing Donald Trump, right, to then you know, just loving Donald Trump, you know, mm -hmm. literally signing, you know, make America great hats and promising <laughs> his allegiance to Donald Trump to the very end. He can't now then turn around and now run against him and say he's bad for the party. He can't do that right now. He's just in a box for that. But yeah. if Trump somehow decides that that's it, I'm not doing this or somebody say indicts him mm -hmm. <laughs> and he's unable to run, that is when I think, I think you know, Cruz has left himself with enough runway where he can easily say, look, yeah, of course I said that at the time, but right. now President Trump is out of the way. Now I'm going to put myself in there because, you know, Ted Cruz thinks he can take everybody in the field. You know, mm -hmm. if you haven't been around Ted Cruz oh, enough yes. to know that, he knows in his head that he can beat these guys. And mm -hmm. that's going to be motivation enough for him to run if Donald Trump is not in that mix. Yeah, he's he's got that on lock at least as far as he's as far as he thinks he's he's got those folks locked down. He's got the base of the Republican Party absent Trump. He would be the guy, and I think that you know nationally, if you think about who some of the re Republican figures are who are talked about all the time for president, you kind of have two major groups. I, I think one are the ones, and I'll just be frank about it. One is the group that can't stop kissing Trump's ass, and the other is the group that they don't badmouth Trump necessarily, but they, but they're the ones who are not kissing his ass anymore. Right. I would put Nikki Haley in that group. She's not, she's not doing that anymore. Right. And there are other Republicans who have just stopped doing that. Um, there's a tiny, tiny little group. And this, that's the two big groups. There's a tiny, tiny little group of Republicans who would be the ones to badmouth Trump. But I mean, that's Liz Cheney. Yeah. You know, God bless her, but she's she's just not welcome <laughs> in Republican politics anymore. And that's a lot of the folks who were aligned with, you know, the the Cheneys aligned with, of course, you know, the Bush orbit. All the people who would be, you know, uh, the, the descendants of George H. W. Bush, George P. Bush, for example. You know, he found out what it was like to be on the opposite end of a primary from a guy who is Trump's guy here in Texas, Ken Paxton. Um, you know, and Bush. Here's I think this is why he flamed out so badly. This is what we talked about at the time in that uh, in that primary for attorney general. Bush kind of couldn't figure out where he needed needed to be in the, out of those groups, right? Yeah. I mean, he was trying to be Trumpy, even though Trump was going with the other guy. And there were a few of these candidates, um, for example, Alan West running against uh, Governor Abbott, some of the, and uh, Don Huffines, and some of these other people who were trying to challenge. Republicans who had the stamp of approval from Trump and the argument that they were trying to make, and this happened in other parts of the country too, they were trying to argue that, no, no, I know that Trump has endorsed my opponent, but I'm the real Trumpy candidate. Yeah. It doesn't work, right? Well, I mean, on any level. Well, in George P's case, I thought like he always had that chance to be able to capitalize on, you know, the George H. W. Bush Republican. Who uh, th there are many of those in Texas. There, there are still people who think he is the best Republican that Texas mm -hmm. has ever produced. You know, and it's like people thought that, oh, is George P. going to grab that lane? And he actually ran against that. He actually yep. literally ran against his grandfather's legacy and right. said, "I'm the Bush who got it right." It's like what. Right. It's like, uh, so he, the people who would naturally fit into his category were suddenly going, okay, I guess I'm not voting for him either. Who am I supposed to vote for? And I'm not voting for Paxton or Bush, you know? So right. now what? He said, uh, he said, I'm not that kind of George Bush. Yeah. And when he said that, I knew that that was, that was pretty much over with. But <laughs> you, your name is literally George Bush. All right. <laughs> That's enough show. I had someone tell me, Jeremy, this past week, it was a very sweet comment, I thought. Somebody told me that the low point of their week each week is when I say, that's enough show, Jeremy. Aww. Oh, you know, it hit <laughs> me sweet. right here. It hit me right here. I'm putting my hand on my heart. Right here is where it hit me. Um, and you, dear listener, and all the others who are listening right now, you know it's your favorite show. You know you share the guy's disappointment that it's over now. Uh, you should be subscribed to the show, of course. Just hit that subscribe button whichever platform you use to listen to the show. Subscribe at quorumreport.com, houstonchronicle.com, and we will see you next time.